hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. Right, welcome back to the next episode of BC Law's Just Law Podcast. Uh, we're joined tonight by Professor Michael Cassidy of BC Law. It's me, Tom Blakely, and Jim Fiore. Uh, Professor Cassidy teaches and writes in the areas of criminal law, evidence, and professional responsibility. He is considered an expert in prosecutorial ethics and provides training nationally to public sector attorneys on their responsibilities under the rules of professional conduct. Cassidy received his bachelor's degree, magna cum laude, from the University of Notre Dame, and his JD, magna cum laude, from Harvard University. Following law school, he served as a law clerk to the Hon- Honorable Edward F. Hennessy, Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial court and as a litigation associate at the Boston law firm of Foley Hoag. After leaving private practice, Cassidy worked as a prosecutor in Massachusetts from 93 to 96. Cassidy served as chief of the criminal bureau in the Massachusetts Attorney General's office under Attorney General Scott Harshberger. Professor Cassidy, thanks for coming on. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm great. Awesome. Uh, well, tonight we wanted to talk about a case that, uh, you know, at least here in Massachusetts is, is really well as nationwide has attracted uh, a lot of attention, which is, of course, uh, the disappearance and cohasset of uh, Anna Walsh in the weeks since then it's uh, now turned into a murder charge against her husband and uh, you know really interesting case I think for a number of reasons you know one anytime you have a missing person you have the you know this evidence that's that, that's come out you know the news media kind of swoops in and can really turn these things into, into quite a story but for our purposes you know there's a lot of questions of you know criminal procedure you know evidence uh, you know criminal law other areas that uh, we figured would make an interesting conversation we'd like to we'd like to discuss so um, you know just as a, a quick summary uh, Jim do you want to yeah. just introduce it so just as a you know, quick summary of the facts, Brian Walsh and his wife, Anna, hosted a New Year's Eve party um, at their house. Um, Walsh told police that his, life, uh, his wife left for a work emergency the next morning, and then she has not been seen since. And since then, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that's come out as, you know, pointing to the fact that he may have uh, has have something to do with her disappearance, something like... Uh, for example, Google, uh, his Google search history shows that he had Googled some things like 10 ways to dispose of a dead body and things like that. There's video surveillance of Walsh putting trash bags in dumpsters that are far away from his house. So just like peculiar things like that that are, that are kind of concerning. Um, so a search warrant of, of his fa- house found that uh, found a bloody knife and blood at his house. And then since then, he's been arrested and charged with misleading police investigation. Um, he pled not guilty to that, and the hearing for that is set for February 9th. Uh, so the first question I want to ask, you know, that one of the things that makes this case... Let me just sure. interrupt. Yeah. Uh, after he was charged with misleading the police, he was subsequently charged with first-degree murder. So okay. they've upped the charges to murder since that. Absolutely. Um, so going off of that, we just want to ask about uh, murder charges when there's no body. That's one of the things that makes this case interesting. You know, it's a higher you know standard for prosecutors to prove the case. We don't have a body. It's a bit unusual. Could you just talk to us about about that cases where you're dealing with murder charges but no body has been found? Well, sure. I mean, you have to prove that somebody died. It's mm-hmm. not a homicide unless you prove somebody died. But uh, and the usual way of proving that somebody died is with a body, but it's not required. As long as you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody died, uh, you've satisfied uh, that element of the crime. Um, it's more difficult for reasons that we'll probably get into, but it's not impossible. I mean, there are lots of cases throughout history where prosecutors have have proved murder charges without without a body. Jeffrey Dahmer is one of them. <laughs> his, his special's on Netflix now, yeah. uh, uh, and a lot of people are interested in that case. But there have been uh, dozens of cases throughout history, lots of them notorious, where uh, the body has not been discovered, whether it's because it's been chopped up and disposed of, in some cases eaten, in mm. some cases thrown away, and the person refuses to uh, lead investigators to where the body is. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so just going to the sort of circumstantial evidence 
and some of what you were alluding to. How much circumstantial evidence do you need to prove that a person has died to, to you know, meet the threshold of bringing that charge when you don't have, of course, the body? Well, you have to have enough to convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt mm -hmm. that somebody died and he killed her. So um, circumstantial evidence, the law doesn't distinguish between circumstantial and direct evidence in terms of how much proof there is. In other words, it doesn't have to be necessarily more proof with direct or more proof with circumstantial. Either form of proof needs to just add up to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And sometimes lay people don't get that. They say, well, the evidence is all circumstantial. Well, if there's enough of it, mm -hmm. it can certainly be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And in this case, you know, between the, the uh, website searches, the bloody knife, the carpets with blood on them, her jewelry and her identifications found in some of the um, bins that he visited, uh, I, I'd say there's very strong evidence that she's no longer with us. So I wanted to ask you about the the Google searches that they, or the, his search history that, that is coming out. So he, he made Google searches on his son's iPad, um, things like you know, hacksaw, best tool to dismember. Can you be charged with murder without a body? Can you identify gruesome. a body with broken teeth? So, some some of that stuff. So, just like the the uh, a general question on like, is that common to to get that Google search history? How do they do that? Is there any like privacy concerns there? Well, um, or privacy protections rather. If they had a search warrant for his house, they probably had a search warrant for all electronics within the house. So mm -hmm. they probably seized those computers and did a forensic search to see what searches have been run on those computers. So mm -hmm. they would probably have a forensic expert testify that I looked at the search history on these computers and these are the websites that mm -hmm. we've done. Mm -hmm. um, what makes this case interesting and very, very sad is that the children were incredibly young. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not like he can point to one of the children or their friends or teenagers in the neighborhood who, mm -hmm. who could have been doing these searches as a joke. I mean, the children were so young, some of them weren't even old enough to type. So um, it really comes back yeah. to him. That's pretty strong evidence. Yeah. So, so it... So just to be clear, like anything in the house, so it doesn't matter specifically that it's the son's iPad, like it, the search warrant would cover any electronic. It wouldn't necessarily cover it unless you put it in the search warrant, and okay. I haven't seen the search warrant, yeah. but I, I suspect it mm -hmm. includes all electronics or computer equipment mm -hmm. within the house. And just a quick follow-up question to that. It, it made me think of the, the 2016 case with uh, Apple when the FBI uh, ordered Apple to you know unlock a phone and they refused to comply. They were eventually able to get, uh, you know, get in the phone another mm -hmm. way. How does that... How does that compare to like a search warrant? Is that just completely completely different? Well, no. If the, if those tablets were locked, um, and he wouldn't be required to give over the mm -hmm. um, the um, code or the security code to that, but there are ways of, of unlocking a tablet tablet without the code. I mm -hmm. don't know if those were locked or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, we also want to ask about the role of GPS data. So it sounds like one of the things that you know enabled prosecutors to really go back and retrace the footsteps of Brian Walsh in the days after um, his wife's disappearance was looking at phone records, looking at GPS, and using that to then go to those places and look in the trash and security camera footage and otherwise. Um, what, what is the process for police to obtain that information? Do you need a warrant to the phone company to get the GPS data? It looks like they were able to get that very, very quickly and be able to you know, reconstruct his footsteps. Yeah, so that's called third-party information. And mm -hmm. if it's held by the phone company, what towers it was bouncing off of and not held by him, mm -hmm. um, 
the you you do need uh, a lesser form of suspicion than probable cause to get that through administrative subpoena to the phone company. It depends on how extensive. If you were going to track his movements, let's say for, you know, three months using his GPS location data, mm-hmm. data you might need a full probable cause search warrant. But um, in other words, contemporaneously, we want to track this guy for three months versus a few weeks ago. What was right, he doing? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and, and I just want to ask you about, I guess I wouldn't call it strategy, but what's the what's the point of first charging him with misleading a police investigation and then a week later charging him with murder? Is that just trying to get everything done, like as soon as you have enough evidence charging? Why not, instead of why not wait until you have everything ready and charge them all at the same time? Uh, well, because you might want to um, get him out of the house and incapable of destroying more evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might still be working on the evidence. So they seized a lot of the, the um, trash material from the places he uh, went in Swampscott where his mother lived, and it took them days to sort mm-hmm. through the trash. So they were trying to kind of neutralize the situation mm-hmm. until they could find out whether they had stronger evidence against right. him. So, you know, among all this evidence, you know, there's obviously all the trash and the Google searches and, you know, just voluminous uh, circumstantial evidence. And obviously you have the court of public opinion in a case like this where you have, you know, guy's wife disappears. You know, there's bloody knives. There's other things. It's in the house. The husband was at Home Depot buying cleaning supplies. I think as far as most members of the public is concerned, he, you know, he did it. Um, I'm curious what type of evidence, though, you think will be fought most heavily over at trial where you ultimately have to prove this in a court of law. Is there evidence that you know, people are talking a lot about that might be excluded. I'm just curious how that might play out in court when it comes to the evidence and what, what will come in. Well, I think they'll certainly move to suppress the contents of the search of the house. I haven't seen the search warrant, but there'll be a motion to suppress saying mm-hmm. that there was insufficient probable cause to search his house. That bloody knife in the basement is very incriminating. Mm-hmm. Um, they may move to suppress the um, the uh, cell tower location um, uh, data on the GPS, mm-hmm. arguing that it was a more intensive search than would be allowed for retrieval by uh, an administrative warrant. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound like he made any post-arrest statements. Mm-hmm. Um, they might move to suppress uh, those statements on the grounds of voluntariness, either because he was in custody and should have been given his Miranda warnings and wasn't, mm-hmm. or there were some forms of threats or coercion. Maybe maybe he was threatened with the removal of his children or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things in, in circumstantial cases the prosecutor usually tries to prove is consciousness of guilt. The prosecutor mm-hmm. tries to prove that the person made evasive statements mm-hmm. um, to law enforcement and through those ev- evasive statements tries to say, well, unless he was guilty, why would he have misled uh, prosecutors? If they can get those statements suppressed for any reason, mm-hmm. that would be helpful to the defense's case. And when it comes to you know what you mentioned about potentially suppressing the GPS data, arguing that they needed a more substantial warrant to pursue that, is obviously that GPS data allowed them to go to all these dumps and find all of the trash and find all the security camera footage. Would all that get struck if that data is suppressed since that's the, the, the fruit of that search of those cell towers? Well, it, it could. It could mm-hmm. be a Wong Sung problem. It could be a fruit of a poisonous tree. Mm-hmm. Um, it really would depend on um, what, the pros- what the government knew when. Um, had they gotten the the video camera first and they knew that they were up by his uh, mother's house through independent means of the video camera, then it probably wouldn't be suppressed. Okay. Um, and, and one last question. One, one of the yeah. things I like to tell my students on the day one of, of criminal law class is it's, 
in, in this day and age when the government can figure out where you were at almost every step of your mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. whether it's because of cell phones or video cameras that are on top of almost every building and every street light, mm -hmm. um, having a, a false alibi is very, very dangerous, right? Yeah. Saying that you were, you know, taking your kid out for an ice cream or um, at um, Whole Foods when in fact you were in a dumpster in the back of a, uh, of a apartment building in Swampscott just looks really, really bad. And they've right. got him on video surveillance mm -hmm. in behind apartment buildings at dumpsters that he would otherwise have no apparent reason to yeah. be at those apartment buildings. And I think he said he was going to his mom's house but got lost. Like, there's a lot to that that's, that's you know, pretty pretty questionable. Right. Why would you get lost at your mother's house? Yeah, exactly. Like if there's one place you know how to <laughs> find it, it would, it would be your mother's house. Um, one last question on, on the evidence. You also have this sort of, I don't know if you'd call it a B-plot, but there, there's this element to the story where Brian Walsh was also a defendant involving a, a case of fraud, which was you know several years, um, I believe he was awaiting sentencing. He had an ankle brace. There, there were some other doings there. There's subsequently been reporting that perhaps Anna was aware of that, financially benefited. There's a lot going on with with that story that might point to financial difficulties, legally, you know, otherwise, how much, how much of that would be admissible in this case? Or, you know, would the parties be interested in, in getting into that at all? Would it do would you expect that storyline to come in, in in any way or no? Well, this is like how it's like a, those puzzles you did as a kid linking the dots. And once mm -hmm. you link all the dots, you've got the image of the horse or whatever. Right. Um, the government would be able to sh have to show a link between the um, the fraud and a motive for this murder. Otherwise, it would be what we call 404A evidence. It would be character evidence. The jury would be prejudiced by hearing that he committed another crime, normally not admissible, mm -hmm. unless you can show that it's offered to prove something other than just propensity to commit crimes. If sure. somehow they had evidence that, you know, she was threatening to cooperate with authorities, she was going to leave him over the art heist, he needed money to pay for his lawyer because of the uh, art fraud, mm -hmm. they would have to show some link to motive in order to get it in, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as this evidence keeps coming out, definitely doesn't look good. Um, but going into this case, what are possible defense strategies for for his you know attorneys? Um, is it just like hope for you know to suppress a bunch of evidence and get the be best plea deal you can? Like what's what's the strategy here when there's so much evidence? Well, back to where we started, um, without having a body, mm -hmm. um, I, I think the government's going to have a, a hard time proving first degree murder in this case without a body because mm -hmm. when you have a body, you can usually prove time of death. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can work back from time of death and, and, and you can also prove manner of death. Was she killed with the knife, for example? Did it take 17 stab wounds to kill her with the knife? Or was she strangled? Or was she poisoned? And then she was cut up. In Massachusetts, in order to prove first-degree murder, you either have to show premeditation or you have to show that it was committed in the course of a life felony. Or you have to show that it was done in an extremely atrocious or cruel manner. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been a lot of talk about this, but I think it's going to be hard for the, with, without a body for the government to prove whether the killing happened first and then the dismemberment or whether the dismemberment was part of the killing. Mm. If the dismemberment were part of the killing, then you have what's called an extremely atrocious or cruel 
killing under mm -hmm. Commonwealth versus Kameen, Commonwealth versus Castillo. If you inflict a death on somebody in an extremely cruel way that causes them to suffer while they're dying, that's first-degree murder in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. But let's say he strangled her or he poisoned her and then regretted it and started to research how to dispose of a body and then dismembered her. That doesn't count as an extremely atrocious or cruel murder because she was already dead and she wasn't suffering from the dismemberment. Mm -hmm. And unless they can show that, he, unless they can show when the killing occurred compared to the searches, mm -hmm. like if they can show the searches occurred first and then the killing, that's premeditation. Mm -hmm. But if the killing occurred first and then he searched for how to dispose of a body, that's not premeditation. That's mm -hmm. postmeditation. And so I think it's going to be, I think this is a clear second degree murder case, but I'm not sure the, the government can prove first degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt. So what you might have here is an extended plea to second degree murder. There'll be lots of motions to suppress the evidence and then maybe a, a plea to second degree murder. The government's going to be reluctant to plead it to second degree murder because the public outrage is so great. Mm -hmm. But do they actually have, without a body and without an autopsy report showing when the time of death was, do they actually have proof beyond a reasonable doubt of either premeditation or extreme atrocity or cruelty? That's going to be a big issue. Focusing on you know motive, uh, turning to that in, in, in the timeline more particularly, you, you had mentioned you know a question of whether or not he had given statements to police afterwards. We do know that initially he had this, uh, well, you know, she had to go to an emergency at her company in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., had a flight on January 1st, uh, uh, you know, kissed him goodbye, apparently took a ride share to mm -hmm. Logan Airport. You know, authorities later actually went to Washington, D.C., found out, well, you know what, she never got on a flight, I think uh, said she couldn't confirm that she was ever on a ride share. Um, Assuming that Brian Walsh was not Mirandized before making those statements, he said, okay, well, you know, this is what I think happened. You know, that story obviously seemed to unravel in the days after that. Mm -hmm. um, what is the role of that story, essentially? Because at this point, it, at least from what we're aware, he hasn't you know, offered more statements. He's been charged. He's lawyered up, et cetera. Um, looking to that in, in the idea of motive, a lot of people are talking about what, what was the motive? Can we find the motive? What is the role of, of, of that in, in, in the trial, the coming trial? Well, the, the defense is going to want to try to keep those statements out because mm -hmm. from the prosecutor's perspective, they show uh, consciousness of guilt if he's mm -hmm. making false statements. The one thing that the defense is going to want to try to show is that he did contact the employer Mm -hmm. This kind of disputed evidence of that. The employer's mm -hmm. security department is saying we contacted him first. He seems to insist that I called somebody down there earlier than that, mm -hmm. and I don't know the name of the person I talked to. And and if 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 that's a credible claim that the defense has some evidence in, that could um, undercut the the government's theory of of fabrication. Mm -hmm. But I think the first um, the first line of attack is going to try to be. To try to suppress those statements, mm -hmm. um, and um, he wasn't in custody. He hadn't been arrested yet for misleading the police. Mm -hmm. But the tricky part here was he was on um, uh, pre uh, he was on pretrial detention, probation mm -hmm. for his federal charge, which he had been pled, pled guilty to, but not been sentenced on. Mm -hmm. So he was under supervision. So I think that the defense is going to try to prove that. That hanging over him, his, the ability to have his uh, his probation revoked, 
um, by his federal uh, probation officer was a form of custodial um, situation mm -hmm. where he should have been read his Miranda rights before there was any questioning. And absent an apparent motive, you know, I think we talked before, maybe he had financial difficulties, relationship difficulties, et cetera. Does the prosecution necessarily need a motive? What is the role of a motive in a, in a murder trial? Uh, so that's a great question. Uh, no, the prosecutor doesn't need a motive, but in a first-degree murder case, unless you can prove extreme atrocity or cruelty, you need to show premeditation. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to prove premeditation, the fact that somebody has a reason to do it helps prove that they intended to do it and right. thought about it beforehand. So it helps prove premeditation. But they could prove premeditation um, by the fact of going out and purchasing that knife if they can prove that he purchased it for the uh, for the um, for the killing without ever showing what his motive was so motive helps but it's only helpful because it shows premeditation I think one of the things that's going to be key is the police interviews of who was at this dinner party mm -hmm. we haven't heard very much about this at all we mm -hmm. heard that it was sponsored by one of their joint friends we don't know how many people were there mm -hmm. um, you know, the government's going to want to prove arguments. The government's going to pr want to prove that she was out of sorts. The government wanna, wants to prove that they were prickly towards each other. The mm -hmm. government might might want to see if there's any evidence that there was an explosive disagreement that night. Um, they can't get that through the children because under Massachusetts law, children of that age can't testify against their parents in a mm -hmm. criminal case. So it's really the adults who saw them mm -hmm. in the hours before the killing that are going to be... Um, crucial to figuring out whether there's a motive here. It, it, it does certainly seem like, you know, for a case where there's such a thorough timeline and, and, and evidence that those critical, you know, moments, New Year's Eve, there's a party, you know, who was there? Were the friends? Where were the kids? Where was the, there, there's some right. question marks that have uh, yet to be answered. Right. Yep. And I, I just want to go back to more of a policy question with, like, the Google search history. And this may be more in like the criminal procedure realm. Is it possible? Because it's it's strange that we kind of we're seeing his Google search history and kind of going like step by step through his kind of like criminal acts. Is there any way, or, or has this ever happened where they can preemptively, if they're seeing someone search something that would indicate they're probably committing a crime or trying to cover up a crime, can they preemptively do that? Can the police use that information before there's actually? You know, or, physical evidence. or maybe if like someone's, I mean, we've seen this tragically, you know, in the country where you know, people were planning mass shootings yeah. and other violence tend to go online and post and research and, right. and other things. It reminds me of that Tom Cruise movie where he was, uh, he worked for that, um, that organization that tried to stop crimes yeah. before Minority they committed. Report? Minority yeah. Report, right. Oh. I mean, you would have to have, um, you would have to have people with Google um, with eyes on this stuff all the time um, to, to be able to, to alert uh, authorities. But you don't have a, an expectation of privacy that Google doesn't know what you're searching. Right. So mm -hmm. Google could, could alert, but you know how many millions of users are there in the world searching every day? Yeah. Does Google have those resources? I could imagine like, you know, with uh, you know, some artificial intelligence program just like triggering like right, a certain, certain word, word and then you look into it deeper. Yeah. But then again, yeah, like we saw with Apple, they don't really always want to cooperate because that's probably not going to be good, good, for, good business. for their business. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Professor Cassidy, thanks for coming and discussing the case. It's been Tom Blakely, Jim Fiore and Professor Michael Cassidy of BC Law discussing the uh, charges against Brian Walsh and the case to this point. Thank, thank you again for coming in. Right, it was my yeah. pleasure. Thank good you. to awesome. see you guys.